0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. This week, I was chatting with Vanessa Bonds, social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Vanessa studies how people influence one another and how they can underestimate how much influence they really have. Vanessa has been a visiting scholar at the NYU Stern School of Business and has taught at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Harvard Business Review. In this episode, we chat about Vanessa's first book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, published in September 2021. Vanessa discusses why people are often blind to how much of an impact they have on others. Are there occasions where people overestimate their influence? Does influence come with responsibility? Are there gender effects? Vanessa also mentions her related line of research on underestimating the kindness of strangers. Why are people often kinder than we expect? Finally, Vanessa shares her experience with writing a book as an academic and gives advice for others who consider writing a book. Hope you enjoy. today on the Stanford Psychology Podcast. I am so excited to be chatting with Vanessa Bonds. Thank you so much for making the time and joining the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So I love a book that tells me on its cover page what the key takeaway is. You have more influence than you think. Two first questions. How do you know what people think and what does it mean to have more influence than we think?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. And I love that, uh, you mentioned that about the title. I was struggling to come up with a title for the longest time. There were so many, you know, on the cutting room floor. And finally, someone was just like, why don't you just say exactly what the book is about? Like the thesis of the book. And so I was like, you have more influence than you think. That's what it's about. And they were like, you know, I think that could be the title. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So what does it mean to think? Wait, what were the two questions? What was it? <laughs>
0: How do we know what people think about how much right. influence they have? And what does it mean to have more influence than we think?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So basically how we know what people think in the studies that I talk about in the book and the studies that I usually do are we basically have them guess Uh, how much influence they had over another person in a given situation or predict how much influence they're going to have if they go and try to, you know, influence another person. So, for example, in a lot of my studies, you know, we'll say basically how many people do you think will agree to do this thing for you if you ask them, right? And then they go out and they test that intuition that they have about how persuasive they would be to get someone to do something, um, in other studies, we have people go give people compliments and we say, you know, how much is this compliment going to impact this other person? In other words, you know, how good is it going to make them feel? And they go out and they give a compliment. And then we ask the other person, how good did that make you feel? And so trying to sort of understand what they think is basically this intuition. We just ask them explicitly and then we have them test that intuition and tell us what happened or we figure out what happened. And then what we find in all sorts of different contexts is that people's guesses often are underconfident. So they think that people are going to say no to them more than they actually do. They think uh, people aren't going to feel as good about the compliments they give them or the nice words they say, then they actually do. And so we get this disconnect between people's intuitions and then what actually happens.
0: All right. Do you equate the words influence, control and power because they seem interrelated or do you see these concepts as separate?
1: Yeah, I definitely see them as separate. So When I think of power, I'm usually thinking of it in the sort of way that power researchers like Adam Galinsky and, you know, people who work with him uh, define it in terms of control over resources. And so it's more an actual sort of, I am in charge in this situation, whereas influence is like the ability to, you know get access to those resources. But the way I define influence is actually a lot broader than that. And I think maybe broader than some other people typically refer to influence. Because when I think of influence, I'm really thinking of impact as well as, you know, gaining any kind of resources or getting someone to change their mind even, or getting someone to uh, give you something. So those are all parts of influence, but it goes even further than that. And so for me, the sort of if you were to come up with an actual definition of influence, it would be just anything that changes another person's, you know, thinking, feeling, or behavior. Um, but change is also kind of a broad term because you could change someone's thoughts, right, about something by making them more sure about something they already thought. And so you would never actually see a, a change, right? It doesn't mean totally flipping someone's. Opinion, you know, you could change someone's behavior in a way that keeps them doing that same behavior even more than they otherwise would. And again, you wouldn't necessarily see that. And so I like this kind of definition of influence because it captures so much of the influence that we have in other people that's invisible, that happens in their heads that we don't have access to, that happens weeks later that you know, we, we're not present to see. Um, and I think that's really where a lot of the underestimation of our influence occurs. Like it happens in these formal ways. We ask for something, people are more likely to say yes to us. So that's kind of a more formal, traditional way of thinking of influence. But it also happens in these ways where we make a throwaway comment in a meeting and someone thinks about it weeks later, you know, and maybe even tell someone else that comment. We're not there. We don't know that someone remembered that, you know, and in cases like that, because we're not there, because we don't see it, we tend to assume that it's not happening and it's actually happening more than we think.
0: As a social psychologist in training, the first research that comes to mind when I hear about how people estimate their level of control or influence, of course, is the work by Alan Langer on the illusion of control, right? Which is really the idea that people overestimate in some senses how much they can control the world, right? So if you're playing the lottery and you get one lottery ticket, you realize, okay, I don't, I can't control the outcome of this. But if I get to choose between two lottery tickets and I pick one and then I win the lottery, you know, I'm like, oh my God, that was my, my decision at the making. I influenced the outcome when I really didn't. It's still luck, right? And so in some situations, people seem to overestimate how much control they have. And I wonder how you situate your research um, alongside this, this other established research.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, um, Erica Boothby, who is a postdoc at Wharton, and Dan Newark uh, and I wrote a theory paper kind of outlining what we mean by this kind of influence and control. And one of the things we talk about is the fact that there is this long history, as you mentioned, of research on overconfidence and perception, you know, being overconfident in your control over situations. Um, and Most of that research is really in the non-social domain, right? So it's predicting the control you have over something like a lottery outcome, as you mentioned. And so in that case, you know, you're making a judgment about this inanimate object, whereas the situations we're usually talking about when we talk about underestimating in the social domain, and that's specifically sort of where we talk about it, this domain of like winning friends and influencing people and like the pop vernacular, um, In that domain, there are all these other processes that are not at play in the domain of inanimate objects, right? So for one, if I want to know if I influenced a person, I can't just look at that person and see what happens, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of influence happens in that person's head where I can't see it. Mm -hmm. And so it relies on all these processes like perspective taking, which we know people are notoriously bad at. And in that way, it's a lot of the perspective taking processes breaking down is is explains a lot of the underestimation of influence um, that we see.
0: People are bad at perspective taking. I feel like I could very accurately take people's perspective. What is the research (laughs) behind this and how do we know people are astonishingly bad at perspective taking, at least worse than they think they are?
1: Yeah. So, you know, some research by Nick Epley and his colleagues have shown that, you know, this kind of instruction we give to people all the time to take other people's perspective Um, is kind of pointless because people are just really bad at it. Because when you try to take someone's perspective, what do you do? You imagine how you felt in situations that happened that were similar, right? And you might have experienced them totally different. You had a totally different set, uh, a totally different background, a totally different set of beliefs. And so your experience can be quite different from someone else's. Uh, We tend to search our own brains to try to figure out what someone else is thinking. And so we're searching our own stereotypes, our own ideas about another person. And not surprisingly, you know, we make mistakes because we're relying on all this internal information. And so they talk about this difference between taking perspective and getting perspective and define getting perspective as actually not searching your own head, but getting out of your own head and into that other person's head. And it's the simplest thing, but simply asking someone directly, you know, how do you feel about this? What do you think of this? What is your opinion? Not surprisingly, makes people wildly more accurate at guessing what that person's opinion or belief or feeling is, right? That's like the most obvious thing I think you could say, but people don't realize it. They think they're going to get to that same answer by searching their own heads without asking the other person. And so we really think that we're pretty good at perspective taking when we really need to get perspective and ask people more.
0: It is the saying that whenever people say what I would do if I was you really means what you would do if you were me, right? But, and yet, as you're saying, we're so overconfident. And I think a way to increase humility here is to realize how much we can't even read our own mind. I don't know why, you know, I'm really determined to go to the gym. And then I don't, I don't understand my motivations and my emotions. And I am so complex. And if I can't even understand myself, it's really hard to understand other people. So it seems like we should have some, some sense of humility here.
1: Yeah. So true. I mean, even, you know, there's so many studies, you know, on predicting how you would behave in a certain situation and these kind of empathy gaps you have for yourself, these, um, cold, hot, sort of uh, gaps in assuming you know from a cold emotional state that if I saw someone harassing someone, if I saw someone you know saying something racist, I would clearly stand up and and make a big point out of saying that that was wrong but in the situation people feel embarrassed they aren't sure the situation's ambiguous right and so so many ways in which we would predict how we would behave, and often in a flattering way, don't actually match how we actually behave. And as you said, you know, if we're so bad at predicting how we ourselves are going to behave in a situation that we're not currently in, and then we have to do this double duty of not only predicting a situation we're not in, but someone else in that situation. I know Lee Van Boven and and his colleagues have uh, a paper on this sort sort of double jump that you have to do, like not only from a cold to a hot state that I'm not in. But also from my perspective to your perspective, you know, you're that much worse at making those kinds of predictions.
0: I remember in high school, in history class, we had a teacher who assigned really harsh assignments and we all we all decided that we were going to stand up to her and tell her that this is unfair and unfair treatment. The class we were talking about, and then after class, we wanted to talk to her. In class, we talked about the Nazi regime and how people didn't stand up against the regime. And we were all like, oh, we would stand up. Then after class, I was the only one left actually talking to the teacher because everyone was too shy and didn't have the courage. And I was like, if you can't stand up to our 60-year-old history teacher, you know, would you really stand up to the Nazi regime? <laughs> right? It's easy to make these grand assumptions, but then when it actually comes to it, it's it's a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have more influence than we think. Why should we care? What, what benefits come with realization that we do have more influence than we think?
1: Well, I mean, for one, I think it just is very reassuring because this does seem to be a place where people are really underconfident. They worry that, you know, they're not making an impact. People want to feel like they're having an impact on the world and other people. And I think one thing a lot of people have talked to me about is just that it makes you feel better, even if you don't articulate what you want to say perfectly, even if, you know, you just sit there nodding and you don't actually make a contribution necessarily in a meeting. Um, You know, all these kinds of situations where you're like, oh, am I really doing anything? Are people even aware that I'm there? You know, are people actually listening to me? So a lot of those questions are answered in a reassuring way, right? Like people are noticing that you're there more because they're noticing that. They're kind of thinking about things differently. Um, They're not as worried about those times when you were inarticulate instead they're getting the gist of what you're saying and that actually is meaningful so there's all these things that you know on just a base level i think are just reassuring for just people in the world especially introverted people um i found that you know introverts resonate with this quite a bit because the idea is like you don't have to stand up and do this like extroverted typical way we think of influence but you have impact in your own way as well um but then there's other things like you know we might hold back from asking for things because we underestimate our influence. And so we might not ask for help that we need or things that would make our lives easier uh, because we think people are more likely to reject us. At the same time, if we don't realize sort of the impact we have when we ask for things that people can't say no to us, As much as we might think that they could, we can also have a negative impact. You know, if we're just oblivious to this influence and not just sort of, you know, missing out on opportunities, but literally oblivious to the things that we do that impact other people, then we could be having a negative impact in ways that we'd really rather not and not even realize it. Um, And then another way as well is that one thing that underestimating our influence can make us do is to kind of come into arguments, guns blazing, because we assume that to have influence, you need to be super assertive and aggressive. If you don't realize that actually, you know, the little things you say also have impacts, you might push too hard and then have the opposite effect that you'd like. Again, you know, you can actually turn people off and elicit psychological reactants instead of actually being effective when you're trying to make an
0: argument. I love that argument, especially the last one. When we try to change someone's mind, let's say we have a political disagreement and we talk to someone and we do some empathic listening. We're not yelling at them. We're actually listening to them. We're hearing their perspective. We have a conversation. Even then they will not change their mind like a minute after and make a complete 180 shift, right? To change your mind. That's a, that's a big commitment. That's a lot to think about, right? And to change your mind about something fundamental means changing your mind about many things that come with this fundamental belief. And so it just takes time and, to see that, you know, the influence goes on after the conversation as we're no longer engaging with them as they hopefully think about the conversation that we had. That's such a powerful perspective and so different from, I have to talk to them. And right after I ask them, have you changed your mind? Yes or no. Um, expecting these radical shifts.
1: Exactly. I think that would feel so satisfying, right? Like we want, when we argue with people. We usually do it because we want to see this like 180. We want to see like the anti-vaxxer get vaccinated right in front of us. And then we'll feel like, oh, I had an impact. Right. But when you really think about it, I think deep down, that's actually what would satisfy us. And maybe the only thing that would satisfy us. But in fact, you know, that is so incredibly unlikely And if we come at it from this perspective that actually the things we say, you know, this person is not likely to concede right here in this moment, but we can say some things that maybe they'll think about tomorrow and maybe they'll hear something else from somebody else, you know, and maybe there'll be this cumulative effect. And I think thinking about influence in that way and kind of trusting yourself and the other person that there are just these social you know dynamics in play where you do say things people do remember them you know especially if it's someone you like you know friends and family like that stuff gets in more than we think and it could be frustrating because you want to see that 180 uh chris beckler at i think wait where is he is he at stanford i can't remember anyway but um he has some really fascinating work um this is showing that people if they want to choose someone to persuade they prefer to choose someone who is the, the, who they can flip their perspective, hmm. right? When you're actually much more effective at moving someone a little bit, right? Mm. Like getting them a little closer to your perspective, but that doesn't feel as satisfying. And we want to feel that like, oh, I totally flipped your perspective, right? And so we actually want to influence the wrong people and then we go about it wrong when we try.
0: I really do appreciate the link between sense of influence or control and well-being, really. Right? You talk about when we feel like we have no influence on anyone, on anything, at any time. That's not a great feeling, right? That's a really horrible feeling. And then you could make the straw man and say, well, but I don't want to influence everyone all the time about everything. I don't want to be a social media influencer, right? And most people are low enough in narcissism that they don't want to be an influencer, I guess. And so no, somewhere in between, and, and, and there's a difference in influencing people for the sake of influence, because we actually hungry for the influence and the status and the admiration and just having some sense of making a change in the world and having a certain impact on the world, not just at large, but just the people around me. And that there's a healthy balance in between. I really like this, this conceptualization.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because again, I think because we think of influence in this formal way we can feel ineffective about the things that feel like formally about influence. For example, I was talking to this woman in England and she was very upset about Brexit and she was feeling very ineffective. Like, I wish I had done more. You know, I wish I, you know, I, I," she was a teacher. She was like, I feel like I could have taught my students differently. I feel like I could have talked more directly about Brexit, but I felt like it wasn't my place and all these things. And we were talking about it and, All the things that kind of you talk about every day that aren't like, I'm going to lecture you about Brexit, right? I'm going to have this whole political conversation, but about values and what you think is important, you know, and who we respect and what you, you know, reward, like all these everyday things that aren't an overt political argument are also impacting other people and impacting what they see and the values they hold. And those go on to impact their you know, political uh, affiliations and the way they vote and things like that. And so, again, I think that a lot of people think things like, I don't want to get into a big political fight, but I still want to impact like, my party or the direction of my country in a way that I, I care about. And I think you can do that through just talking about values and social norms and all sorts of things that aren't like a formal political sort of argument. And I think people forget that. And that's kind of that middle ground you're talking about where you're not like this big proponent or influencer, but you're also not kind of doing nothing. You can still feel like you are putting your perspective out there and it could have an impact down the road.
0: Yeah. And the impact that people can have, it doesn't have to come in big grandiose gestures. It can be small comments that they make. If I just think about my own Academic position that I am in now and why I am here. It's not the you know, sure I got accepted into grad school and there were big decisions along the way, but why did I even apply to grad school? Why did I even think I could one day become an academic? Right, and it's really, for example, professors and office hours, where as an undergrad I would go to office hours, I would be all intimidated, I would have questions prepared like it would be an interview because what could they learn from me? And yet, there's one professor at the end. Telling me, I have this article coming up. I'm not sure. Can I send it to you? And you can read it and give me feedback. And I was just, I, I, I still feel like tearing up because I was like, what does he want feedback from me on? Right. And of course, my feedback was horrible <laughs> and it was not useful and it didn't go anywhere. But just the mere act that he asked and these small gestures that he probably immediately forgot about, busy that he is. And these small changes really have an impact. And so if you flip that over, we maybe don't realize how these things influence us and these small interactions influence us. But the people who influence us also don't really realize how much of an influence they can have. And then we oftentimes never let them know. And so it seems like you can flip the argument and maybe we should send more letters of gratitude to people and just tell them how much of an influence they have had on us. And they would be surprised.
1: Yeah. I really think that, I mean, I mean, Kumar and Nick Epley also have this paper, you know, on sending gratitude letters to people and how people, wind up appreciating those letters so much more than we anticipate. Um, And we think that, you know, it's just going to be awkward and weird. And can we really put it into words? And do they really care? Right. But they really see the warmth in those letters. And they don't really care if you said it awkwardly. And it means so much more than we anticipate. And just what you said, you know, um, the way I talk about it often is that, you know, we all have these little moments that just reverberate in our heads that we remember, you know, for long periods of our lives that impact major decisions, you know, little comments people have made. And it's easy to forget that that means that the little comments we make also affect other people in ways that we may not see and we may never see, right? Because, you know, oftentimes people don't write to you and say like, oh, I keep thinking about this comment you made. I feel very fortunate as a professor. I feel like I do get those emails sometimes. And mm. each time though, it still blows me away. You know, it's like, you said this thing in, in lecture, you said this thing in office hours, and I thought about it and this is what how I'm using that now. And it's like, wow, I just can't believe that actually stuck with someone for that long. Um, and it does, it feels good to feel like actually my words have impact and It's, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's just such a good reminder, too, that the opposite could happen, too. If you say something that really discourages someone from pursuing a PhD or, you know, pursuing their dreams, that that also can reverberate in their heads and have these really downstream consequences that you may not even intend.
0: Yes, and this is where these dynamics play along across power dynamics, right? And where oftentimes, as you write about, the more powerful don't really see the impact that they're having. And just, you know, send out an email to their employees, for example, and just think they will not care about it. But to them, it's it's a message from the boss. And so it's really important and they really care about it and they have more of an impact than they think. And so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the power dynamics and how they play into this dynamic.
1: Yeah. And this is um, Adam Galinsky had written an op-ed where he he used this phrase, you know, that to for the powerful, their whisper sounds like a shout. So even you know a small little comment by your boss or someone you really respect, right? Really, is one of those things that is more likely to reverberate in your head than maybe something from an equal, right? It just is that much more meaningful. It's that much louder in your head. But what's really interesting about power dynamics is that we know from research on you know the interpersonal experience of power or the personal experience of power, is that power, being in a position of power makes you less likely to sort of actively take the perspective of the people around you. You know, you just don't need to. It makes a lot of sense because you're the one in control of the resources. You're not kind of trying to figure out how to get the resources by getting in people's heads. And so, you know, it's easy to imagine like bosses or people in positions of power who just say things and don't obsess, you know, for hours later about how people took that thing that they said. Right or wonder if maybe I should have phrased it a little differently. So they may blurt things out that you know they don't put a ton of thought into that are those things that then feel really like commands or things that really stick in people's heads. Um, and at the same time, people in positions of power, we also know that they are more sort of comfortable just acting and not cowing to whatever the situation is kind of um, calling for. And so they feel more comfortable doing things like saying no, right? And they may kind of over-apply that to other people and assume, if I say something and you don't feel comfortable, you'll just say no, because that's what I would do. Mm. And again, we're bad at taking people's perspectives. People in power are even worse at it. So they're even more likely to draw from their own experience, right? And so, again, this, this is a sort of dangerous combination in some situations where people in positions of power can abuse it, sometimes even unintentionally, you know, by asking for things, assuming if someone's uncomfortable, they'll just push back when people don't actually feel like they can push back against the
0: boss. Okay. So you have convinced me that we have more influence than we think. Are we more influenced by others than we think? Right. I like to think of myself as an independent individual. Every time I have to make a major life decision, I of course, I sit down like a true scientist, make my pro and cons list. I think about things rationally. I'm my own person. I am entirely influenced um, just by my own thinking and not influenced by other people. But maybe that's not entirely correct. So are we more influenced by others than we think?
1: I I do think we are. I think, like you said, that we tend to think of ourselves as independent. I think it also tends to be a very Western sort of conceptualization of the self, right? In this more individualistic self-concept where I feel like the independent rebel, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, if I do something, it's not because of peer pressure. It's not because everybody else is doing it. You know, I'm an individual doing it independently. Um, And it's interesting because in reality, in all cultures, we're subjected to peer pressure. In all cultures, you know, we care about being part of the group. And so we do take other people's opinions into consideration quite a bit and other people's behaviors. And we do find it hard to say no and, you know, don't want to suffer any social risk by like damaging relationships by saying no, by going against the grain. So all those elements of sort of this more collectivistic way of thinking are actually present in individualistic societies, but we tend to think of ourselves as more independent. And so we've actually done studies, for example, in like New York and China and compared um, our, our two populations. And we do find that even though both sets of participants find it hard to say no, right? That our Chinese participants were more aware of it. So they were a little bit more attuned to those dynamics, whereas our American participants more thought more that if someone doesn't want to do something, they'll just say no, right? They'll be free to say no when that wasn't in fact true.
0: With influence comes responsibility. So the question is when we underestimate how much influence we have over other people, why is that? Is that because we just don't see the influence, as you suggest, that we have? Or because we don't want to see it. Because once we see it, we have to be responsible for all the influence and power that we have. And it seems like these are two very different mechanisms.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I've always thought about it as just not seeing it because Mm -hmm. even when we try to motivate our participants to like get it right by incentivizing them, for example, they still can't get it right. They still seem to just have this, you know, inability to really get into somebody else's head and realize how hard it is to say no. Um, And so I think that the motivational element is kind of less, less strong, although it probably is still there as well. Um, It is interesting because it reminds me, you know, of these studies where reminding people about the responsibility that comes with power, like, okay, you get to be the leader of this group. But with that, you know, position comes this responsibility where you also have to decide what your group members, you know, get the kind and allocate the resources, you know, that makes people not want to be in that leadership position and like not want the power. Um, So it does seem likely that there might be some element of also, you know, of being motivated to think that I don't have, you know, that much influence because then I can just go around feeling free, like, you know, I'm just doing my own thing and other people can do their thing and And that's the way it'll be.
0: I love the argument that we just don't see the influence that we have, that we visually don't perceive it or at least not process it in a way. And so the concept of self-fulfilling prophecies comes to mind here. Where oftentimes, for example, the way we treat people, they treat us back and it can become self-fulfilling, but we don't see alternative reality. So to quote a friend of mine, he was recently talking about how he can become cynical and distrustful at times. And he said, whenever the world seems really horrible to me, I ask myself one question, is the world horrible? Sorry for my language, but I'm quoting here. Or am I just being a dick, <laughs> right? Am I bringing out the meanness in other people? If everyone around me is mean, well, maybe that's that's just me. You know, Maybe I bring this out in other people, but if I'm nice to other people and they're nice to me, I don't really see the impact that I am having in bringing out certain tendencies in other people. All I just see is the outcome, which oftentimes confirms the beliefs that I had in the first place. So it's really interesting to think through these dynamics and how we influence other people, and really don't even perceive it because we don't see the counterfactual.
1: Yeah, no, I love I love that, and I completely agree. Um, the way I often think about it is even just based on our physiology, right? When we are looking out through our own two eye sockets, right, we are seeing everything out there that's impacting us and all the people out there who are impacting one another. And so all these bad things that we see happening, you know, for cynical or all the good things that we're seeing happening, you know, we're attributing to all the things we see out there. Right. And the thing that we don't see when we look out to our through our own eye holes is ourselves and the things that we're doing, the things we're putting out into the world and the things that other people are in turn reacting to. And so, you know, there's um, research by Eli Finkel and research by Ethan Cross showing that taking a third party perspective and kind of imagining situations such as an argument, you know, between you and a spouse or you and a friend from this third party perspective is really helpful for you know maintaining relationship satisfaction and for working through you know difficult conversations. And they often talk about it, you know, in terms of the emotional regulation aspect of it. And I think clearly that's part of it. Um, But I also wonder and imagine that part of it is also that you start to see what other people see. You start to see yourself in that situation and how you're actually contributing to certain dynamics. And that can make you feel empowered to fix them, right? You can start making changes as well.
0: We underestimate the kindness of strangers. You write about how people can be surprisingly nice to us once we ask them for help. Could you describe this research a little bit? I love this line of research, Personal person alone. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, this is a line of research now I've been working on for over 15 years. So it started when I was a first-year graduate student with Frank Flynn, who's now a professor at Stanford. And we basically had people go out and ask people for favors and guess how likely people were to do them favors. And we found that, you know, people were twice as likely to agree to help our participants than our participants imagined they would be. And so we had them do things like ask people to fill out a survey, ask if they could borrow someone's cell phone, and they would call us back at the lab and be like, yeah, this person loaned me their cell phone. Um, we'd ask, they would ask people to walk them basically three city blocks across the Columbia campus to find this location on campus. that's kind of hard to find. Um, and they would ask for donations, Uh, So we had a whole range of different small favors that our participants would ask people for. And on the one hand, you know, our participants, when they would come in for these studies, first of all, they would be super nervous. They would like hate us for asking them to do this. And they would ask us questions like, you know, what if nobody says yes? Uh, Or what if this takes all day, you know, and we only had allocated an hour. And so they were clearly, you know, worried that they wouldn't be able to do this, that people would say no. And they would come back almost invariably quicker than they expected, right, within less than an hour. Um, and they would like bound back, they would be so happy and they would be like, people are, wow, people were so nice. I can't believe how easy that was. And you could just sense like this palpable change in their attitudes. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, people are warmer and kinder and nicer to us. And it's partly because of the social norms, like we don't want to offend other people around us. Right. Um, but then of course we also found that another sort of driving mechanism of that effect is that people also find it just really hard to say no. So there's kind of both elements. People are definitely kinder, more willing to help. Um, after they do help, even if they felt like they couldn't say no, they they feel good about it, right? They feel like they just helped somebody out. So it's still a warm and fuzzy experience, um, but there is this added element of also, they couldn't find the words to say no in the moment.
0: I really do resonate with both the underestimation, right? no one is going to help me, people are mean. But then whenever people ask me for help, it's very, very, very uncomfortable to say no, especially if it's in person, right? And just right in their face and be like, no, thank you for asking, but no. Um, so that's that's really uncomfortable. And I also really like the other aspect, of course, that maybe people aren't as bad as we think. And it's interesting when we talk about, will strangers help you? Will people help you? People is a lot, it's a lot of individuals and it's a very vague term and it seems like, Part of this mechanism here is that whenever we think of, you know, people, quote unquote, or strangers, or you know, society, whatever vague term we want to use, we think about those vague, strange people out there whose crimes we hear about in the news, right? (laughs) And that's that's society, and that's people as far as we know. And so it seems like we have a very distorted image. And that when we think about the people we actually know, our friends, our family, we tend to think they are nicer than you know most people out there, just because we seem to have this distortion. I don't know if you agree with this, but That seems like a partly the mechanism for this effect.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that that's part of what's going on. Is that when our participants are imagining this task, they have this image of how it's going to go that's so different from how it goes in reality. And I don't know if they're kind of imagining an average person who fits more of these like descriptions of like you know mean strangers that they. I don't know, have in their head some sort of abstract notion. And then they actually get in front of a real human being who, you know, is happy to help them in that moment. Um, But as you said, you know, when we think of friends and family, we think of it so differently. And we actually have found in our studies where we've had people either ask strangers or friends for help. That when they imagine doing this, right, they think their friends are going to be so much more likely to say yes than strangers. But when they actually go out and just ask friends and strangers for a small favor, the difference is very, very small, right? So strangers are almost as likely as friends to agree to do a small favor for us. And I think part of it is this, like, we have this idea, like, this is what strangers are like, this is what friends are like. But in fact, in reality, you know, again, standing face to face with someone concretely, They're just a nice person who wants to help us out and doesn't want to sort of rock the boat socially.
0: Yeah, it is easier to be distrustful of a group than it is to be distrustful of an individual, right? So, you know, there's a lot of talk about boomers, you know, older people who are boomers with technology. It's easy to categorize a whole group of people like that. But then whenever you meet someone who falls into that, I guess, mindset or age, whatever you, however you want to frame it, it's very insulting to just a priori assume that they will have certain traits and, you know, character traits that you attribute to them. And so for individuals, we're like, no, 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 they might be the exception, but, you know, those people in general, they're all bad. So there seems to be this dynamic where we treat groups differently than we treat individual individuals.
1: Yeah. And I wonder how much, I mean, I think there is a certain abstractness to imagining that hypothetical situation of asking people that could have this like groupiness to it. Um, we do ask them to imagine, you know, um, sort of going up to specific people. Um, but again, that, I think that abstract nature makes it really difficult. And then when there's a real human, like now I've matched like a face and often like they're doing something different, I think than people imagine. I don't know this for sure, but my intuition is that people are imagining stopping people who are like walking to class really quickly or something. When in fact, when they go out and do it, I think they tend to stop people who are like Sitting on a bench doing nothing. Right. Um, But again, it's the imagined idea of like when I think hypothetically, abstractly about the task of asking someone for help, it's so overwhelming. But in reality, there are people out there who are willing to help. You know, they're real people who are nice, who, you know, are perfectly happy to do something that they don't have other things going on right now. So that help is available.
0: Are there any gender effects for underestimating your influence?
1: Yeah, I get this question all the time. And interestingly, as much as we imagined we would find gender effects in our studies, we haven't. Um, And I think think that doesn't mean that there aren't gender uh, ramifications of these studies and of our effect. So When I say there's no gender effects, we really don't regularly, every once in a while we find something, but it's really not consistent where we find that, you know, women or men underestimate their influence more than the other. Um, but I still think that it could mean different things to women and men. So I think that if both groups underestimate how likely people are to say yes, or overestimate, uh, how likely they are to be rejected, that it could be more distressing for women who are you know, prescriptively told not to rock the boat, to be agreeable, to be communal, not mm-hmm. to be too assertive. And so I think if you imagine that you're likely to be rejected uh, based on those prescriptive norms for women, you might hold back and not ask. Whereas for men, it might not be as risky to go ahead and just ask and you know, take the risk of maybe being rejected. Um, and so while the bias, we don't see this difference I wouldn't say that there's no gender differences, but we haven't really tested those downstream differences yet.
0: Are there any other demographic variables that predict who underestimates their influence? You could think along power lines, you know, white people, um, we just talked about men, whoever has more power, you might say they underestimate their influence more because they're blind to the privileges they have. But you might also say people who are more in a minority um, underestimate the influence because they think they have no influence to begin with. Is there are there any other demographic variables that help us predict who underestimates the influence?
1: Yeah, I mean, so When we've done these studies, we've mostly had white and Asian participant samples, so we haven't been able to look really systematically at the question of race, which would be obviously a really important question to look at. I do talk in the book a little bit about the the sort of power dynamics and how white privilege can make us underestimate our influence even more because we aren't in a position where we constantly have to take the perspective of, for example, our Black colleagues and think about, you know, oh, how how would this feel you know having a comment about your hair every day for example um so i talk about how kind of shockingly surprising it was to so many white people in the past few years when the black lives matter uh protests and you know hashtags were showing up to hear all these stories about the kinds of systemic like little microaggressions that you know our black colleagues are subjected to all the time and there was this element of like oh my god i can't believe it it's like That is itself a privilege and an element of not realizing, um, the impact that you can have, you know, with these little comments that one by one, you might be like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have made a comment about someone's hair, but it was well intended or, you know, it's, you know, just a, an honest mistake. Right. But when you see them all together, it's like, oh wow, this is a whole systemic issue. And so I do talk about the element of race, but unfortunately don't have enough data in my specific studies. Um, in terms of groups, though, we've done these studies where we've had participants put on a university shirt and go to another university in the same town. So we did this up in, when I was uh, a professor at Waterloo. Um, and we had participants wear like a Waterloo t shirt and go over to Wilfrid Laurier, which was like the, the other university down the street, and do our studies basically. And we wanted to see if there was a difference. And we found that people thought there would be a difference, you know, asking um, participants basically of another school. But in fact, there was no difference. So similar (laughs) to the friends and strangers, we have this idea in our heads of like different groups are going to react differently, but they actually didn't react differently in the moment.
0: Do academics underestimate their influence? Being in academia, I feel like I talk to a lot of people who are like, I'm not making any impact. I published this paper. I've worked so hard on this. No one cares. No one reads it. I'm not having any influence whatsoever. I know this is a bit of a wacky question, but out of, you know, some self interest and <laughs> the interest of a lot of people I know, do you, how do you look at academics and their sense of influence after doing this research?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd say, you know, if people, you know, aren't reading our papers, of course it's hard, you know, if no one's actually seeing the work. That's one thing. And then it's hard to argue. Oh yeah. It has all this impact. You don't see if no one's actually seeing it. I think what I've always been surprised by is when I just talk and a lot of, a lot of this, you know, comes down to like, I think, um, overcomplicating the dynamics of influence, like what it means to have influence as opposed to just two people interacting and kind of sharing information. And I found when I just talk to people, you know, who don't know about my research, about my research, I find them, you know, kind of being impacted by it more than I realize. They'll talk about it weeks later and say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I remember hearing about your research. And so I asked someone about something. So I think in that way, we may think that the things we're doing aren't as maybe connected or other people wouldn't find them as interesting as maybe they would. Um, but I can't say for sure. And I definitely think, you know, a lot of academics are also teachers, And the impact we have on our students, I think, is just enormous. Um, And I think that's another thing that really comes with this element of responsibility, you know, that the things we say really do weigh on our students, you know, years down the line. I can think of so many things that I was, you know, a professor said in undergrad that I still reflect on today and are either helpful or, you know, maybe question things.
0: So you are not immune to this bias. It seems like you have written a book, how you have more influence than you think. And then you talk about it and are surprised that you have more of an influence with this book than you think. So I wonder, what have you learned writing this book? And how hard is it for you to abide by these rules?
1: Yeah, I feel like in part, like this book was a way to convince me, you know, (laughs) 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 like you have to reassure myself. I mean, I guess, I have been surprised how many people say like this really resonated and was reassuring. Like I found it empowering. You know, a couple of people have actually told me that their teenagers in high school have read it, like they've given it to their daughters and and that they found it really empowering. And that actually was incredibly heartwarming. I'd say that was the thing that I was most like, oh wow, that's exciting. Cause I feel like that's a time in your life when kind of hearing these things is especially resonant. Although in some ways, one thing I have been surprised by is how even people of all ages, even people in powerful, you know, uh, contexts and powerful roles, seem to feel this way as well. Um, but I, I mean, it, it is true that a difficult thing is, you know, you say I wrote this whole book, and yet I still get surprised. And it's true. It's like, it's not as easy as just now, you know, it, and now you won't feel that way anymore. You know, I still get butterflies asking people for things. I still don't like to do it. You know, it doesn't go away. Um, But I think it at least has given me tools for dealing with those butterflies and, you know, convincing myself it's worth asking, convincing myself to speak up like people aren't going to judge you for being inarticulate. You probably weren't as inarticulate as you think, you know, so it's, It doesn't alleviate the feelings of insecurity um, or of like ineffectiveness, but it definitely has been a way to make myself feel better when those feelings arise.
0: So a lot of our listeners might be academics who hear about this and are inspired. Wow, maybe one day I can write a book and have an impact too, (laughs) have more of an influence. I wonder if you have any advice for academics who wonder, should I write a book? as an academic, because some people might say it's incentivized that it's disincentivized. What was your experience writing a book as an academic and what would be your advice for someone who's considering to write a book as well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so I'll say I, having written a book, you wind up talking to a lot of other people who have written books and everyone's experience seems to be different. Hmm. Um, you know, some people enjoy it. I actually really enjoyed writing it. I know some people find it torturous. Um, But there is something just really uh, fulfilling about putting your thoughts in this long form format, you know, just kind of from beginning to end, summarizing all the things you've learned over a period of time. I definitely feel like I wasn't ready to write this until I had been doing similar work for quite a bit of time. And then I was like, okay, you know, it's been a while now. Like, I kind of want to put all the things that I've been thinking down And so that was definitely really fulfilling. Um, I would recommend it. I mean, I don't know if I want to do it again. but (laughs) (laughs) I definitely like having something like I made this thing and it's written for like anybody to read and it kind of summarizes my perspective. And I feel like that's something that academics like. They want to just have their perspective accessible to other people
0: we're slowly running up against time. So I want to make sure to give you a chance to say any last words, anything else you want to talk about, anything else that is on your mind. Um, And otherwise, really, either way, thank you for making the time to be on the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been really fun. Um, I think that covers everything. I mean, we covered a lot. I don't feel like, oh my God, I need to make sure I say this. So
0: yeah. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.